three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another exciting episode of Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we're advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. The views of the host are his own. I'm your host, Jim Petrosky. Today, I begin a series on reducing the effects of a nuclear attack. The discussion will focus on U.S. domestic non-military civil defense perspectives. However, concepts discussed here can be applied globally. Also, this series is important for our military members as protecting them and their families when not involved in a military operation is an extremely important part of our national defense strategy. So let's begin. As a starter, I wish to tie this discussion to deterrence, as I always do. By reducing the effects of an attack when deterrence fails, we promote deterrence, which seems contradictory. After all, the primary goal of nuclear deterrence is not to have any nuclear weapons employed, and from a civil defense perspective, not on or near U.S. soil. And please note, I stated not employed, as our nuclear weapons are used every day, deterring others from taking a chance at an attack on the United States. Again, this seems contradictory, to have nuclear weapons as a deterrent to others using theirs, but this is exactly the nuclear deterrence concept and historically how it has unfolded. If you don't really understand that, I suggest you listen again to episodes one, three, and seven of this show as it's explained much better by Dr. Lowther. Nuclear preparedness has a similar deterrent effect. If a country is prepared to survive a nuclear attack, and thus the effect on our society, way of life, ability to respond, etc., is reduced, then the chance that someone will employ a nuclear weapon on the U.S. will be diminished. And thus there is a deterrent effect. In other words, we are so prepared that the event never happens, and that is sometimes a difficult concept to sell. But my best example is that I have really expensive tires on my car, so that in an emergency situation, they will provide the control necessary to save me. But I hope they end up keeping me from ever getting into an emergency situation in the first place. And if so, they will give me enough control to keep the damage small. From an academic and strategy standpoint, this is referred to as damage limitation and is a factor used to establish the effectiveness of deterrence, determine civil defense measures, and establish a number of weapons required to maintain deterrence. From a practical standpoint, damage limitation simply means that we understand that if nuclear weapons are employed, then there will be some damage, but it is limited and an aggressor sees this and will likely determine that the juice is not worth the squeeze. Now, what can be done to prepare for the devastating effects of a nuclear attack? Well, that is a very complex question because it really depends upon what kind of attack and where it occurs, 
And the where it occurs is referencing multiple locations. So reference episodes 9 and 16 of this show, and I hope you are finding that the show is building upon itself. So today, I'll cover the general guidance provided by FEMA. In a report from March 2018, FEMA report P149, if you want to look it up, at www.ready.gov. And it's titled, Be Prepared for a Nuclear Explosion. Yeah, some easy reading. Actually, I found this two-page guide well-written and clear for general audience. Uh, this document provides the primary information related to the effects of nuclear weapons, and it states that they are a bright flash, blast wave, radiation, fire, and heat, EMP, and fallout. What it doesn't state is that each of these is affected by the location of the blast, both in reference to you and the blast, and on the height of the blast. Because of warning time, you know, how long it takes for the effect to take place, and how the effect can be altered by the environment, some effects are very difficult to avoid. For example, if there's no warning and you're outdoors, then the bright flash from a typical nuclear weapon some 10,000 feet or so in the air could cause flash blindness. And flash blindness is a short period of loss of sight, more than 10 miles away. Since light travels at, well, the speed of light, then, just like with thunder and lightning, the flash will arrive long before you hear anything and are alerted to duck or close your eyes from the detonation, so you have no time to respond. However, if you're in a building or a car, facing a different direction from the detonation, or in an area with poor visibility, there may be no effect on your eyes. So these things vary a lot, and therefore much of the FEMA literature is oriented towards survivability to factors you can prevent and control. And these are primarily from the blast wave damage and exposure to fallout radiation. Before I leave the concept of warning, though, if a nuclear attack occurs or is imminent, you can take precautions to reduce the probability of being affected by flash blindness while in your home or in a shelter. For example, if an attack is imminent, you should head into a shelter. P.S. A car is not a good shelter. It has windows, and when the blast wave comes, it can flop over. So a solid structure, preferably underground, is a structure you should seek. If you have a radio inside that shelter, then you can maintain communication without going outside of the shelter and possibly being blinded when the attack occurs. You can stock the shelter with supplies so you can remain inside for the duration of the emergency or the when it's imminent. And you can choose or build a shelter with no windows. The bottom line is there is much you can do in preparedness that can increase your survivability and reduce the effects to you if a nuclear attack occurs. So back to the FEMA document. The primary response is to seek shelter, move away from windows, and if fallout arrived before you got inside, in other words, if ash, dirt, or charred debris falls from the sky and lands on you, remove the affected clothes and get far from the clothing, and if possible, bathe or shower. And if you're going to be in a shelter for a long time and you have other people there, bathing and showering may be important anyway. Well, before leaving the show, 
I wish to look at our damage limitation from an historic viewpoint. It is suggested by many authors that the U.S. was at one time much more prepared for a possible nuclear attack, you know, during the Cold War, and that this had a deterrent effect. I quote from a National Institute for Public Policy article entitled, How Much is Enough? A Global Driven Approach to Defining Key Principles for Measuring the Adequacy of U.S. Strategic Forces, written by Dr. Keith Payne. And I quote, the findings from a recent studies of limited nuclear attacks against the U.S. cities are not surprising. The U.S. ill-prepared for even a small nuclear attack. However, there are numerous practical steps that can be taken to reduce the level of societal vulnerability to limited nuclear attacks. As the author of one recent study concludes, there actually is quite a bit that we can do to save lives. In certain areas, it may be possible to turn the death rate from 90% in some burn populations to probably 20 to 30%. And those are very big differences simply by being prepared well in advance. Unquote. During the 1960s, people would purchase or build bomb shelters and stock them with survival goods in case of a, an attack. Before you scoff at this and think of that as old thinking, recall that this deterrent worked. There were no attacks on the U.S. soil. Furthermore, today's office buildings have panic rooms to avoid active shooters, and if you live in areas prone to tornadoes, people build tornado shelters. These seem to be reasonable precautions, so bomb shelters are not out of the question and may provide a deterrent effect. In schools, when I was growing up, way back in the Stone Ages, we practiced duck and cover to avoid the effects of blast, including shock-producing glass projectiles. These were discontinued because some people thought it traumatized children. I, for one, never felt that way, Although I can say we could pass on the silly cartoons and, oh, that song. It was terrible. And how is duck and cover different from active shooter drills designed to limit damage and save lives? In the end, it's all about damage limitation. And furthermore, if well done, it makes the juice not worth the squeeze. Well, thank you for listening to today's Nuclear Knowledge Show. I hope you learned something new and valuable about deterrence. Nuclear Knowledge is a production of NIDS, a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrent. This podcast is produced weekly and each episode is released on Monday. If you enjoy this show, check out our other podcast, The Nuclear View. You can catch it and all our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com. I thank our producer, Kimberly Sherrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.